you folks had decided on that you wanted to hear about, and that was Christ in the Old Testament. And uh, so this is more of a topical study. It isn't uh, going one verse at a time through a particular book. And we'll do this until I decide to stop, because there's an enormous amount of information here. And uh, if you, you can approach it very, very exact and spend an enormous amount of time dealing with this topic, or uh, you can kind of make more cursory approaches. And so we're probably going to go the cursory route, and uh, and then from there, after a period of time, we'll stop and then let you guys decide about what it is you would like for us to go on and do, and probably a book of some kind or a topic of some kind. Okay? Uh, we have already broached this question already. In other words, last year, right before Christmas, as we were studying the book of Philippians, uh, we moved into a section that allowed us to jump off and look at uh, the topic which is called the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament. And this topic, uh, there are some 50 different references in the Old Testament of what is called the angel of the Lord. And if you follow those particular topics or those passages down through the Old Testament, what you find is, is this particular angel of the Lord is extremely unique because it is often equal to in terms of what is being said in the passage, is God. In other words, God will speak, and then the angel will speak, and then God will speak as though they were one. And, and so, as scholars have studied these passages, they have found that that particular reference is most often referred to as the pre-existence of Christ in the Old Testament time. So what we have is when Hagar is talking to God, or different things, uh, Samuel's, uh, excuse me, Samson's parents are talking to an angel, or when the angel comes to Abraham to tell him that his son is going to be born next year, all of those are Jesus. And they're what we call theophanies. They're visible things that occurred in the, in the lives of these people. They saw the angel of the Lord. They talked to the angel of the Lord. And that theophany, the theophany, theo meaning God, is really an expression of God himself through that angel who happens to be Jesus. And so we looked at that topic uh, right around Christmas time last year and studied that for some few weeks. So that is one very strong place in the Old Testament that gives us a great understanding, and we certainly didn't go into that exhaustively at all, as to the pre pre-incarnate form of Jesus, okay, in other words, before he came to us, and what we know in his form as Jesus. So, <clears throat> that's one way of looking at it. There's another way of looking at it, and this one is perhaps the most exhaustive, and we're going to look at it for some time here, that'll be our major study, is typology, okay, typology. Now, typology is described as a historical fact historical fact used as an illustration of a future spiritual truth. Okay? It's a historical fact that actually happened in history, and it's used almost prophetically, okay, as an example of something that's going to happen in the future. 
And that future event or future concept will be spiritual in nature. Okay? So that is essentially what typology is. So we have something that happens historically, which we're going to look at this morning. Uh, for instance, uh, the four major feasts, that's what we're going to look at, so we won't get all four, we'll just get one. The four major feasts that God told Moses to institute for the people of Israel, there are more than that, but the four major annual feasts that they participate in. The first one is Passover, which occurs in April or in the spring. And then right after the Passover, a number of days, is Pentecost. And that is, a again, a Jewish holiday. It's a Jewish celebration that God has instituted. So you have Passover, then Pentecost, and then in the fall, you have two more. One is called the uh, Feast of the Booths, which occurs in October, and the Day of Atonement, which also occurs in October. Actually, the Day of Atonement occurs before the Feast of Booths. So those are the four annual feasts that God instituted through Moses, okay, in relationship to that. Got that? No, I'll go over again. Passover, Pentecost, Day of Atonement, the Feast of Booze, B-O-O-T-H. Okay? No, no, no. That, that's true. Okay? And, uh, so these are the four, and we're going to actually talk about the Feast of Booze today. <laughs> so that's the one we're going to look at. All right. Typology, again, these, these four feasts that God instituted, each one of the feasts is a historical event that occurs with the Jewish life every year. Okay? And I know that in mine. <laughs> Somebody else's. Uh, is it the teachers? <laughs> Everybody's grabbing their phone. <laughs> All right. Uh, this particular, uh, these four feasts are instituted by God. All of them, every single one of them, are meant as a projection, okay, as a projection of some spiritual content and fulfillment in the life of Christ. When God put them into existence, and each year these people followed what God asked them to do, every one of them were, were an indication of something that was going to happen in the future. And that something is fulfilled in Jesus himself, all four. So this is what typology is. And so what you're seeing is, in reality, in the Old Testament, an enormous explanation in relationship to the life of Christ. 
So you're asking the question, well, where can we find Jesus in the Old Testament? What can we find in terms of his life? What can we find in terms of his character? What, what does the Old Testament have to say about Jesus? Okay? And so what you're seeing is, is that almost everything in the Old Testament finds its way and its future fulfillment in the life of Christ as God unfolds everything. You can't hardly go to anywhere in the Old Testament to where that's not occurring. So, when you study the Word of God, that's why it's a tapestry. That's, that's why it's so deep. It's because of these typologies. That really is what causes it to be so expansive. And that's why we come here. Otherwise, we could have pretty, pretty well, you know, within two or three years, understood almost everything that God was trying to say, okay, in relationship to what's going on. But these typologies, or these symbols, cause things to occur for us to really open up an enormous depth that you can study, okay? There are 50 categories, 50 large categories in the Old Testament that we can term typologies. Fifty of them. And what, I, what we're, when we say that, in other words, here's an idea, like the Feast, feast of Booths, or the Atonement, the Day of Atonement, or the Passover. Well, if you took just the Passover, we could spend the next year doing nothing but studying the Passover and how fulfilled Jesus, Jesus fulfilled everything that the Passover was. Most of us are somewhat aware of how all of everything that's within the ceremony of the Passover, every single drop of idea that God has put into that refers to the death of his son or the coming of the death of his son. So this is the Day of Atonement. Every single thing that God told them to do is representative of major ideas about the life of Christ. So, so, if, so if we were to study those, we would spend a great deal of time. The Feast of Booze is short, real short. So we can give that idea to you very quickly, uh, very dramatically, but very quickly. So there are many of them that are huge, expansive, passage after passage, idea after idea, and others are just real quick shots that God has set up as a, as a symbol, as something that points to, historically, to the life of Christ. Okay? Any questions on that? Before we actually get into the Feast of Booths. If you turn in your Bible, I'm not going to have you go to the passage that talks about the Feast of Booze in the Old Testament. That is Leviticus chapter 23. Leviticus chapter 23, verses 33 through 42. That is actually the main reference in the Old Testament to this particular event. There are two other references in the Old Testament, and but there are only one verse. Okay, so this is not a really large topic in the Old Testament. It doesn't give a lot of explanation either as to all the things that are supposed to be done in relationship to this particular feast. But its greatest meaning comes when Christ claims it. 
Okay? That's when it explodes in terms of meaning. He basically takes the feast and claims it as a typology, as, a uh, as something that has been done in the past that is explaining what he is offering at that moment through himself. Okay? So this, this is what causes it to really explode into its beauty. And even that event itself is fairly small in the Bible. But we have these. Some are very, very quick and very, very beautiful, like a little teeny jewel that you look up and see it. And others are just huge and expansive, like a mansion in terms of its development. Okay? So if you turn in John chapter 7, this is where the Feast of Booze is actually occurring during the time of Christ and when he claims it for himself. John chapter 7, beginning in verse 37. <clears throat> now, I'm not going to read that right now, so you want to just have your Bibles open to it and don't read it yet. <laughs> Let me explain to you what they did on this feast. This feast was a representation of the life of Israel as they were in the wilderness. It was to be a yearly remembrance to them of God's taking care of them while they were in the wilderness experience. Forty years and their life as a people. So what it was, was every single October, at the end of the October, they would meet as a nation in the capital city of Jerusalem. And they would basically get together as a whole nation and on the first day, this was an eight-day feast, on the first day, they would all cut down tree limbs, palms, and build a tent, more or less, okay, out of these palms, which was called a booth. Okay? And so it represented to all of them, and they lived in this booth for seven days, really eight, okay? one day to build it and then live in it for seven. Okay? So every family would do this. Thousands upon thousands of them who would come up to Jerusalem and they'd just be all over everywhere. And every year they'd do that. And it was a representation to the people of Israel who lived in houses, who had beautiful farms, who had finished Right at that particular point, October, the end of October, they had gathered together all of their uh, certain crops that came in at this particular time. This feast was also called the Feast of the Ingatherings. The Ingatherings, which means it was a feast of harvest. They, they ingathered their, their crops at the end of October. So this was a bringing of all the people together to celebrate God's provision for them in the past while they were in the wilderness because he provided for them water, which they did not have. He provided for them manna and meat, which they did not have. And he did this for 40 years. 
He took care of their clothing. He took care of all sorts of things. Their clothing didn't wear out during that 40-year period. Their, their shoes didn't wear out during that 40-year period. Everything he took care of during that 40-year period. And this was a representation year by year by year for people to remember that fact. That God took care of them when he called them out of Egypt. And that he was taking care of them now. Because they just harvested their crops. And so the promise of God linked way to the past and it linked to their present. So it was a celebration of their past and God's taking care of them. It was a celebration of their present of God's taking care of them. And the way they did that was that they got together, they made these booths, they lived in the booths to remind them that all that they had, their house, their farm, everything they had was through God. He took care of them at that time, but he was also taking care of them. And so it was a way of putting them back into the past to remember the present. Okay? And they did that every year. Now, in a lot, of, a lot of ways, you and I, because of what we are, we don't participate in those, these kinds of things hardly at all. We participate in Christmas, and we participate on, in Easter. But we have no celebration of Thanksgiving for the prov uh, provisions of God in our past and in our present. We are very often oblivious to these things. We don't celebrate that in a seven-day feast. Okay. Well, Thanksgiving is true a part of our culture, but that's not a Christian concept. I mean, it grew out of Christianity, but it's not it's not taking it's not a worldwide experience. It's only an American experience. Okay. So the whole point is to bring us to that fact. Okay, and the Jew particularly, he was to remember his past, but he was also to remember his present. God had just delivered for them their crops. And so essentially they had a real sense of the provision of God. So this feast was about the promises of God for providing for you. That, that was what it meant. Okay? But it also had a future promise that was connected to it. The future promise had to do with actually the ceremony that went on for the seven days. On the first day, they made these booths, these tents, that they lived in for these seven, eight days. On the next seven days, okay, or really it was six days, on the next six days, what they did was is go from the temple. The priest would get together in the morning. The people would gather around the priest, and they would have a procession. They would go out of the city or to a pool called the Pool of Siloam or to the Brook Kidron which is outside the city. And they had these golden vases that the priests carried. And they would go to this pool or to this creek, and they would fill up these vases with water. And then they would all make a procession back into the temple, and they would pour the water out either at the altar or at some of the pools that were around the temple itself, inside the temple. And what this was, was again a physical demonstration of what God had done for them. He had provided them water. He had provided them food. He had taken care of them. So every every day they all did this. This was the main deal that happened during this feast. 
On the eighth day, they all got together, went out there, but did not bring any water back. The jars were empty. And the reason for this was a, a holding on to a future promise. So this feast connected God's provision for them in relationship to their whole existence, not only in their own lifetime, but clear to the future itself, for their children's children and for the future that's way beyond that. So it was a look to the past, it was a present, and it was a future. And this future was tied up to Ezekiel chapter 42, I believe. Make sure I get that right. <clears throat> no, it's 47. Ezekiel chapter 47. This is a description of the millennial kingdom. Much of the Old Testament is a description of the millennial kingdom. It is a description of God's final establishing of David's line upon the throne in Jerusalem forever. Time and time and time again is talked about. And from that, a new temple will be built. And Ezekiel gives all the dimensions of that temple. And passage after passage after passage promises that this will occur to the Jewish nation in the future. You just read it in every single book in the Old Testament. So every Jew knew about it and understood that this was a promise for the future. So they would come with these eight jars with no water on them. And the reason for that was is they were expecting God to fill the water jars in the future. It would be a spiritual fulfillment and a physical fulfillment and a huge promise that God had made to the people of Israel that he was going to establish this thousand-year reign. Okay? And that's what they were looking at. So it's the past, the present, and the future. Okay? That's what they did every single year. Also, on the eighth day, it was a Sabbath. In other words, it was a holy day. It was, it was their highest day. And so they were reaching for the highest in this future promise of God's provision for them. Now, here comes Jesus in terms of the typology. These are physical events, historical events. Something that happened in the past, something that was happening in the present, something that was going to happen historically in the future. So it's tied to history. And here comes Jesus, and he claims it in an unusual way, an enormously unusual way. On the last day of the feast, this great day that looked to the future, Jesus does something that was enormously dramatic and very, very egotistical. So he made an enormous amount of enemies, or he got his point across. In other words, if you stood up and did what he did, there would be a large number of people, if you'll notice the reaction begins in verse 40, which we will not read. Many of them accepted Jesus as what he said when he did this, when he claimed this particular this, this feast. And others wanted to kill him. 
And the reason was, is he was, he was, they knew what he was doing. And so it was in a major problem there. Okay, let's look at the verses, verse 37 through 39. Again, very short passage, and yet it's very dramatic. Now on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If any man is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said from his innermost being, shall flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for the Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Now, what Jesus does is, here they come into the temple, empty jar, and they've been doing this seven days, and they've been pouring the jars out, and now this is one for the future. And when they arrive, he stands up and says to the whole crowd, okay, if there's anybody in this room that is thirsty, that desires a deep fulfillment in their life, as this whole ceremony is representing. In other words, God's provision for your thirst, which he did in the Old Testament, and the example of providing water for you that you're celebrating today, which he did just a few weeks ago when he provided for you the harvest. Now he is providing me for you in any area that you thirst any area that you desire and any thirst that is possible within humanity is only going to be found through me. Now it says he stood up and he cried. Now a rabbi never stood up. He taught from a sitting position. This is one of the unique things about Jesus. He was always standing. Okay? And that was not a posture of a rabbi. And then it says he cried. And the word cried is a herald. It's like a guy taking a trumpet and blowing a trumpet. It has enormous emotion like alarm. A trumpet being sounded in terms of an alarm. So, so the point of it is he's making an enormous declaration to these people. He stood up, he got their attention, and he cried this short message. And the message is, what is it within any of you that is lacking? What do you lack? What do you thirst for? And notice the phrase that he said, any, if any man is thirsty. That covers all of humanity. And it covers all the thirst of humanity. All the thirst. And essentially he's saying that the, the provision of God is for every man and his thirst. And the only way that that man can find his thirst taken care of, and that's what the passage says next, let him come to me and drink. That is, the first one is Jesus and humanity, all thirst. The second one 
is Jesus and every single individual. And those two, the individual and Jesus, there's something that's required of the individual for his thirst to be taken care of on an individual basis. He must believe. If he doesn't believe, he will not have his thirst taken care of. The provision of God cannot come to him as the Feast of Booths represents. The Feast of Booths represents the past, the present, and the future provision of God for humanity. And Jesus steps up and says, let me point out to you the only way that you're going to get the provision of God is through me. But every single thirst that you have inside your soul, not just physical water, okay, will be will come to you through me. Okay? It's a beautiful description. Then it says, later on, that when your thirst is filled by God, out of you will flow water from your innermost being to other people. It's a, it's a dynamic description. Not only will you be filled, but from you, water will flow out of you. Now, this description comes very similar to Ezekiel chapter 47, which is tied to this feast. If you remember in Ezekiel chapter 47, there's an altar in the temple, and the altar begins to break out in a river. It's a small little faucet, more or less, that starts out of the temple. And as this faucet of water runs from the temple through the seats of Jerusalem, it gets larger and larger and larger. And it goes to the Araba, which is the desert, and it covers the desert, and then it flows into the sea and rises the sea. So he's picking up that imagery. Out of you, which is a small little teeny trickle that comes right out of the altar, once you have found your own thirst, fulfilled through Christ. You will become of this huge future promise that will reach to all of mankind in terms of their lives as well. So he's standing up, making this huge claim that it is he who is really fulfilling because you cannot participate in the future provision of God except through him. And all of the past has done nothing but basically point to him in terms of the future. Okay. So that's how he's bringing that particular feast to himself. And like I said, most people understood this. They either accepted him, the next word, he, he must be the Christ. Or the next group said, kill him. He's an egotistical maniac who could possibly claim this to themselves. Okay? And so that's exactly the reaction he gets. For instance, if you flip over, well, uh, to verse uh, 40, 45 and 46, the officers therefore came to the chief priests and the Pharisees and they said to them, why didn't you bring him to us? They were, they were sent out into the crowd to bring him to the Pharisees. And the Pharisees but the officers answered, never did a man speak like this. Never did a man speak like this. 
they, they were touched when Jesus looked them square in the eye and says, do you thirst? I will provide for your thirst. But you must believe in me. And out of your innermost being will come living water. All that this feast represents is seen through me. And these guys go, never did a man speak like that. Of course, the Pharisees said, you are completely deceived. And he needs to be put to death. So it's an enormously interesting statement that's given in terms of life of Christ. Okay? We will look at some of the other ones and the different things that are there. Shooting all over there everywhere. All right, see you next week. Joe, thanks very much for taking the time to share a podcast.